When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Today, we're going to talk about all things Alaska and some current events pertaining to conservation with friend of the show and conservative conservationist, fellow conservative conservationist, Cody McLaughlin. We haven't had Cody on the show in a while. He's been busy catching fish and living his best life in the last frontier. And he will talk about some updates from living there. And we're going to go really deep into salmon and some issues that are arising there about how the fishery could be at stake within five years due to some prevailing problems there. We also, like I said, dip into corner crossing rulings and kind of discuss whether or not the commercialization of hunting properties as a means to help increase access on private lands can be turned upside down and harm hunting and conservation as we know it. We have attacks from the federal government And it's not an indictment of the private sector. Private sector is great, but I think some people are using innovative means to cut access on public lands. I think think systems, reservation systems where you're accessing private land is good. I haven't heard much about, you know, buying access to public land. That's a little questionable on the moral side. So Cody and I dip into that a bit more about some brewing debate over that that uh, Blood Origins have talked about. This is a longer conversation than usual, but Cody dispenses a lot of valuable information and he also offers me some tips on how to navigate Alaska for my very first trip coming up in August. And we'll have Cody back again for some future roundtables as more news breaks out on the conservation side. So let's turn it over to Cody. Cody, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to catch up with you. Thanks for having me, Gabriella. Anytime. How long have you been in Alaska now? And you're never coming back to the lower 48, I take it? Uh, so a little over, gosh, I got here January of 2021. It's about two and a half years now. Um, and hell no, I'm never coming back to the lower 48. It's uh, I'm an Alaskan for life now. Um, this state is unmatched. Uh, and I, I just can't imagine living somewhere else. That is so interesting coming from someone from New Jersey, but, uh, it's not unusual because everyone has told me when you go to Alaska, you fall in love with it. That may happen to me and I may not want to leave, but (laughs) I still like living in the lower 48, but August may change my mind. It remains to be seen. And I know we'll certainly try to catch up there, but what has been on your mind on your radar before we dip into Alaska specific policies, what are you watching from Washington and the lower 48 that concerns you a bit? Uh, a few things are concerning me uh, in lower 48 right now. Number one, I mean, continued efforts to um, remove firearm rights 
um, always a big issue. Um, you know, I think you shared it on Twitter that Congressman in Florida, Jared Moskowitz, um, you know, saying that AR-15s leave nothing left of a deer when they shoot, like that sort of misinformation is, I mean, insane. Um, you've got going on the corner crossing stuff in Wyoming. That's actually a piece of good news. Um, a couple of hunters have been um, have been sued by a landowner over the past couple of years. They got off on some criminal charges two years ago, and then um, they uh, were subject to a lawsuit, were defended in an amicus brief by the backcountry hunters and anglers, um, which good on those guys. I've never really been a fan of BHA, but, um, but you know, credit where credit's due. They stepped up for that lawsuit, and they won, and that was a big win for hunters because corner crossing is, you know, um, is an issue. Um, and, you know, the whole privatization of land thing in general is just something that I would be worried about, like population explosions, the, the, the reverse migration from the coasts into the, into the, um, you know, kind of Midwest, Western States, like East of the Rockies, um, isn't, is an existential crisis for those States, in my opinion, because it's like that influx. It's a good thing for their economies, right? The same way if like a million people moved up to Alaska tomorrow and doubled our population, it would be a good thing for the state from an economic standpoint. Um, but the the flipped edge of that sword is that those people have to live somewhere. Those people have to recreate somewhere. Like, And it just – eliminates a lot of like publicly accessible opportunity um, and drives up the price for everybody who's already there. I mean, it's essentially gentrification when you think about it. Um, Who do you think is primarily driving this in the lower 48? uh, Your favorite show. um, What's it called again? Yellowstone. (laughs) Um, Now jokes aside. um, I mean, the Democrats are (laughs) the, the, the liberal left on the coasts, right? What do we call them? Coastal Democrats for a reason. Uh, coastal elitists, whatever you want to call them, have jacked up the price of living so much on the East Coast and the West Coast. California, Portland, uh, Washington. I mean, Jersey's got the highest tax in the nation, always has. New York. It's so D.C., you know. Like, think about it. In D.C., um, I'm not going to ask you directly, but, like, let's let's go back, you know, five years ago. Um, when I lived in DC, that's actually almost seven years ago now. Okay. Um, I lived in DC and I paid, um, what I pay now, seven years later for a mortgage for a house, two bedroom house with it on an acre with mountain views in Alaska, um, is what I paid for rent for one bedroom in a house in Washington, DC, seven years ago. Um, so when you consider like the, the fact that like those prices have gone up so much for the people on the coasts, when they migrate inland to red States that have kept the cost of living down and kept it affordable for people to stay, you know, in their, in the place of their heritage, um, those people are still jacking up the price inadvertently. You know, it's not their, it's not really their fault. They're seeing it as really cheap. But some people are making a buck, and it's just you know the way the way capitalism works, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it does jack up the price in a lot of those places, and it's you know, I mean, 
to the effect of what, what I had said earlier. I think that's more so the policies too. I think if, if states charge more for property taxes, they're ridiculous here in this area, in my county, especially bordering Washington, D.C. I wouldn't say it's a failure of free enterprise. I would say it's the people who are like, oh, let's exploit the system. And so they'll charge more for property taxes um, and everything around it. The cost of living increases. So I would say it's more so government being a problem than than the system. Oh, um, oh there. Well, when you, when you say the system, right, what you really mean is government. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, I mean, that's there's no way there's no two ways about it. It's funny because I hear people a lot say, like, you know, the system, this and the system that. And then they're and then they're I mean, on the left their answer to that is more system. And I'm right. like, what? It's co- counterintuitive. Sense to me. Um, because when you think about it, all of that stuff is driven from a policy standpoint anyway. Right. So mm-hmm. like, I mean, like you say, um, and think about it, right. Think about the migration pattern as, as you would a deer, right. Where, where those decision trees come from. Right. Um, somebody moves out of DC cause it's way too expensive. Okay. They moved to Virginia, Northern Virginia, Nova. We all know how bad the property taxes and stuff are there now, right? Um, but if you're coming from D.C. or New York City or New Jersey, you go down to Virginia, right? Um, it's night and day. Ago, 15 years ago, it's night and day. Virginia is so cheap. Like for me, people here are like, taxes are so high here, we can't afford any more tax increases. And it's not an urgency issue for me because when I look at the – cost of my property taxes here versus what they would be in Jersey for this house. I'm like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, So, but like that sense of complacency over that is what drives it up because politicians feel, you know, comfortable. They have a little bit of leeway to jack up property taxes and that's how they plug budget holes instead of making tough decisions or being creative about how, um, how they manage their budget. Right. And you talk about kind of the over-commercialization of private land as being problematic too. And I think um, since the last time we did a roundup, I had become very critical of our fellow conservatives who are pushing that return act. Um, I think efforts like that also potentially jeopardize public land hunting and fishing even in many cases. And I don't want to see that. So I think there has to be a healthy medium, you know, where you don't see, let's say the Biden administration claiming to promote conservation and open up, let's say, hypothetical conservation leases to bidding in area parts, you know, different parts of the the country, yet it's going to create an unfair system where wealthy environmental preservationist groups are going to bid on list leases and then exclude people, conservationists, especially hunters and anglers. And then you have the other side of the pendulum, the people who want to privatize everything. And that doesn't mean you dislike the free market if you are opposed to that. It's just the one of the few rules the government has and that it should do well, but it doesn't in many cases, is to steward public land so we don't become like Europe. That doesn't mean, um, you know, we oppose free markets. I don't oppose free markets whatsoever. I think market reforms are great. We have too much red tape um, in the case of government here. But I don't want to see like Coca-Cola signs on public lands. I don't want to see... That like that's not what public lands are meant to be or 15 minute cities like former President Trump has proposed uh, building that on public lands. I was like, no, just stop. Like on both sides, like people are drawing too extreme of proposals uh, that would curb public access or make things completely different than what they're supposed to do. So I don't really think the market question really comes into it here because this is one of the few areas, one of the rare areas where government 
should have a role very minutely, but it shouldn't, you know, overextend things or cut access in a paradoxical way. Yeah. And it's, it's a fine line to walk, right? Because think about all the differing factors that are involved in it. It's not even a bifurcated issue. It's just a multifaceted thing um, across the board. So, I mean, let's consider on the one hand, you have individual family farms who are like cash strapped and struggling um, and being bought up by huge mega corporations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which again, there's nothing wrong with that transaction on its face at the individual level. But when it becomes systemic like that, it is an issue that presents a lot of like policy challenges later down the line and a huge transfer of wealth because the less individual families that are like holding on to those traditions, the more of that stuff just becomes like, you know, it becomes a kind of reverse serfdom type of thing. Right. I would say that's um, more so corporatism than free enterprise, though, because these conglomerations um, or conglomerates buy up properties or farms and it really cuts out the individual. So it's very against the individual and the individual is supposed to be empowered in a free market system. So they can almost behave like government sometimes with having all this power exactly. um, and limiting opportunity. I mean, look at Maine. Um, Maine's an example of that, in my opinion. No offense to Maine. Um, and so you think about that, right? Um, and then so the more push-pull, right? The push from um, from individual landowners to try to save their family farm and or like make a good living and cause you know, I mean, people need to make a buck and there's nothing wrong with that as well. Right. Um, exactly. So, mm-hmm. so they try to squeeze as much money as they can out of their individual, you know, properties. Um, and then how does this affect land users, not necessarily land owners in that, you know, you can no longer in many cases go trade, you know, branding cattle and, um, and, you know, trapping coyotes that coyotes and wolves that are attacking, you know, herds and um chopping firewood for the winter in exchange for um access to hunt you know a white-tailed buck on a property anymore um now you know you have huge companies like trying to be the airbnb of of land access and stuff that are like you know really accelerating putting a turbo on the pay-to-play model which in my opinion a true European style pay to play model is a, first of all, a bell that can't be unrung. Okay. No matter how hard you try. Once we go that route, it's never coming back. The great days of like American hunting will be in huge decline. And overall, like, and the lack of access to it because of the economics of it, right? Having to pay $4,000 for two days on a ranch to hunt one elk will make people just stop doing the sport in general, right? Um, mm-hmm. so, um, which at the end of the day, once it becomes a issue of the aristocracy, right? Like a sport that's only accessible to people in a certain income bracket and above the sport dies because the anti hunters be outweigh the hunters mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and there, that's all she wrote. You might as well pack it up and go home. Um, yeah, cause so I keep seeing, it. yeah, I keep seeing numbers about decline again. Uh, post-COVID, which would be problematic. And with all these different factors, you have the federal government, again, potentially closing access, and then you have big conglomerations, big conglomerates, uh, you know, trying to gobble up private land and make it harder for people to do do do-it-yourself hunts or to access private land. I think there are other ways that you could create incentives for landowners to open up their properties to hunting without 
this mechanism being in place per se. Um, I think there are different programs like the USDA has that conservation program. And there's other ways I think that you can insert kind of market reforms like what Perk talks about um, into that offering incentives better without so much of this mechanism coming into place. And and that's something we would have to explore if people don't want that aristocracy system to pan out here. But let's move, let's shift gears a little bit to Alaska. We've talked about salmon offline. And I know you want to talk about that because you want people in the lower 48 to be aware of what's happening with salmon fishing. And then I'm going to ask you about um, why don't we see more American grown salmon in the lower 48? What explains that too? So start with kind of some of the issues happening with the salmon fishery in Alaska. Yeah. So talk about existential crises, right? I've used that word two or three times. Um, and, you know, mostly in a theoretical sense to talk about what could be in five to 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, something that really hurts something that we both appreciate, which is hunting. Um, factory trawling, which is something that's banned in every other state, um, but is legal and in certain parts of Alaska, um, is a true unadulterated existential crisis of what I would call the last great run of wild salmon in, in America. Okay. Um, have you, how familiar are you with the history of the Atlantic salmon? I'm not too familiar. I'm being honest. (laughs) I'm going to admit it. Yeah. Not, not too familiar. So you and I have discussed in the past, um, like shad, right? The American shad, Mm -hmm. um, the history of that, the shad wars, um, you know, the great shad runs on the East coast, how those kind kind of came to decline. Same thing with, the with the, um, with the sturgeon, why they're endangered today, right? Mm -hmm. Long life cycles, um, you know, focus on caviar over commercialization in the early 1900s, the same way that a lot of um, conservation um, issues came about, right? Market, just like overfishing, overhunting, market capitalization, et cetera. So um, that is happening today with regard to, um, to salmon on the West coast, not just the West coast though. Um, uh, Alaska specifically, um, but it's not even being sold. Me- much of it is actually just shoveled over the side of boats in the form of of bycatch. What's called bycatch. So, what is bycatch? Mm-hmm. Bycatch is when is whenever a commercial fishing vessel um, catches something that they don't intend to, and that it's not in season, so they don't have tags for it. They're not allowed to keep it, so they end up throwing it overboard. That is the representation bycatch is the represent representation of what dies in that process. Okay. Um, every type of fishing has bycatch, even, even hook and line fishermen on your regular stream. I mean, anybody who's a fly fisherman will tell you all about that with regard to trout. Uh, if you give them 40 seconds of your time, (laughs) Um, but, um, so, but think about it. It's crazy because, I will get lit up on social media if I post a picture of me holding a holding a 20-inch rainbow too far above the water. And by too far above the water, I mean, you know, 10 inches, okay? Uh-huh. Um, keep it wet, keep it, you know, keep it in the water, blah, 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 blah. Right? If People you're catching and releasing, that's fine. Yeah. But if yeah. you're taking it home, it's well, okay. Maybe. It's debatable. Let's, yeah. Let's set that aside, though, for a second, right? Like, like let's just talk about that. Um, and... 
meanwhile, factory trawling vessels are are taking shovelfuls. And when I say snow shovels full of salmon, king salmon, chum salmon, you know, all five Pacific species of salmon and chucking them over the side of boats to die back in the ocean because they don't have tags for them and they're wasting them. And that is completely legal, by the way, um, (laughs) for them to do. And it's just, it defies all logic um, because it's, it's something that's like contributing to the decline of some fantastic fishing. I mean, legendary fishing, really. I mean, two world records have come out of the Kenai Peninsula um, in the last century for the King Salmon and both world records, like, so the, the first world record and the follow-up, um, and now for the past two years, that, that river, that legendary river has been shut down to King Salmon fishing, um, including this year. So, um, and that's just one really egregious example of how trawling is affecting, um, like, the the future of salmon fishing in the United States. I mean, the first thing anyone talked to me about when I moved up here, when I told them I was moving up here, no matter what friend in what state, people from Wild Turkey Federation, Safari Club International, friends in Florida, outfitters, you know, fishing guides in Florida. I know a fishing guide in Mexico. Um, I know people in in when I went and talked to um, when I went and fished in Hawaii. Um, you know, fishing guides were asking me about the salmon run. Okay, the great the the king salmon run. Oh my god, how is it fishing for salmon up there, dude? You got to tell me about it. Everybody, everybody I know that's ever picked up a fishing pole asks me about fishing for salmon, and uh-huh. and increasingly, what I tell them is, if you're if you want to catch a king salmon, a a truly wild king salmon, not some, no offense to Michigan or. Pennsylvania or steelhead New York or whatever. Um, but like not some like, you know, transplanted formerly stocked. No, they have Chinook there too. Um, mm. uh, Chinook like released from a hatchery and then like bred there um, in freshwater, but like a truly wild as God intended King salmon, right? You need to get to Alaska like within the next five years, in my opinion, or the, like it, the, the party might be over. Oh, that's I'm, a shame. That's how, that's how bad it's getting up here. Cody, you were saying that your worst fear is that within five years, this fishery will be decimated to the point of oblivion where it becomes unrecognizable. And there could be a crisis on our hands, biodiversity crisis, perhaps with respect to Alaska salmon. So could you continue there and why you yeah. think that's the case and, and more about the issue? Absolutely. So like, let's back this up with some numbers, right? Um, Cause it's very easy to say. And I mean, God bless them. The environmentalists have really beaten to death the notion that like everything in the world is going to go extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to back this up with some numbers, you know, just to show people what how urgent this this issue is. So I've gotten some together since 1991, a total of one point seven million kings, king salmon have been documented. And that's just documented as trawl bycatch in Alaska. 1.1 million of those came from the Bering Sea and the Aleutian Islands, and 657,000 of them came from the Gulf of Alaska. Um, and this information is not from me. It's not from some you know obscure organization that's over you know um, overestimating stuff. It comes directly 
from weekly bycatch reports published by the um, by NOAA. Okay, um, observer rates. Meanwhile, and observers are fisheries people that um, uh, that tag along on vessels. Essentially, um, by the way, it's a long documented history of abuse, threatening, and and stuff like that to to um, uh, to you know bully them into um into um giving the you know reports that that uh vessel owners and stuff want by the way but we'll set that aside for a moment and just assume that all this information is above board right so observer rates are super low in the gulf of alaska um so actual king bycatch could be anywhere up to and including 10 times that amount and no one would even know okay so um, we did get a message from one guy, for instance, um, the Alaska Outdoor Council, which I'm on the board of, who said they were getting 30,000 pounds of kings in a single trawl set back in the 80s. Now, pause for a second. Back in the 80s, why do we care about that? It was 50 years ago. Um, it's something that you have to think about because um, if that's happening in the 80s, sa- king salmon are on a seven-year um, spawning cycle. So – um, what happened seven years ago is what affects what's happening today. And so you have a compounding of effects through, you know, some of this bycatch over, you know, uh, overfishing and bycatch um, that, you know, compounds as the decades move forward, which is what we're seeing right now. OK, um, so trawl regulators don't even make an attempt, by the way, at factoring an unobserved bycatch. So that's the fish, the crab, the plants, the coral, anything that gets mowed down. By something that's basically the size of a mini mall and being dragged across the bottom, they pretend that that doesn't exist, which is unconscionable in my opinion. Some think um, and have estimated that an unobserved bycatch could be as high or higher than observed bycatch. But from a scientific perspective, fishery regulators again essentially just pretend that it doesn't happen at all. Um, that is the complete way to go, complete wrong way to go about it. Um, in my opinion, it's an egregious example of um, of giving carte blanche to industry um, to to you know essentially rape this resource and um, and you know really is is a threat to the um, to the uh, to the survival of the species. So couple that with the fact that over the last ten years, trawl in Alaska has reported okay reported once again observed by catch reported. Wasting 141 million pounds of bycatch a year. That's an average of 1 million pounds of waste every two and a half days. Okay. That is, again, just the reported stuff, um, which we already know to be lower than reality. So it could, so on the high end, right, it could be double 10 times that number. Okay. So you could be talking about. 20 million as high as 20 million pounds of waste every two and a half days. Okay. Probably a little bit lower than that. Um, but the reported number of 1 million pounds of waste every, every two and a half days is already unconscionable when you factor in the stuff that's not accounted for at all. Um, you start to see what the, what the issue is. Um, so uh, let's move forward. There's no pie, bycatch limit for crab in the Gulf of Alaska. So if anybody's wondering why um, why commercial crab fishing, which has been 
um, a staple of the Alaskan economy and our TV screens for as long as I can remember um, is no longer um, happening. That's why um, trawlers are, you know, mowing over crab grounds and destroying those uh, that fishery as well. Um, uh, there's no bycatch limit for chum salmon, for red salmon, sockeye salmon, the ones that you like on your plate, pink salmon, the ones that you like canned, silver salmon in either the Gulf of Alaska or the Bering Sea. Bottom trawlers in the Gulf of Alaska are only required to have an observer, by the way, along for 15% of their trips. That means that 85% of the time, by by contrast, they're fishing totally unobserved, which means their bycatch numbers might be way higher than than what is reported. And that goes back to um, the uh, estimate that bycatch no- real bycatch numbers could be as high as 10 times what's been reported. Um. You couple that with the fact that the uh, North Pacific Marine Fisheries Council is the federal regulatory, which is the federal regulatory board which regulates the trawl fleet, has eleven f- voting members, um, and the governor of Alaska is allowed to choose six of them. So that's a that's an important piece of context, um, and brings me to kind of you know this is a federal. Um, this brings me to my point, which is that this is a federal. Um, issue that needs to be resolved, but you know, states and the federal government kind of have to come together and do what they can to 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 rescue the salmon here. Um, and it's not just the salmon, by the way. Um, so Alaska is also well known for the halibut fishery. You know, 100, 200, 300, 400 pound record world sa- uh, world world record halibut have all come out of Alaskan waters. Um, and trawl trawl boats and the trawl fleet are also um, uh, a threat to that fishery. So trawl boats are still allowed, for instance, to fish in the designated halibut nursery area of the Bering Sea, where everyone else, by the way, longline fishermen, um, sport fishermen, guides, they're all banned from from halibut fishing in order to protect the young fish. But a trawler halibut by the way are just giant flounder they they live on the bottom okay that's an important piece of context when you consider that the only boats that are allowed to drag their gear which is essentially a giant lawnmower across the bottom of the hal- across the bottom of the halibut nursery are the trawl fleet which are responsible for millions of pounds of halibut bycatch every single year okay um and that's not including the unobserved bycatch, the stuff that gets crushed and chummed up and, and chopped up hundreds of feet below the surface by this gear that never makes it to the surface to be actually observed by someone. Okay. Um, which again, your uh your fisheries observe your fisheries regulators pretend doesn't exist. So it's and let's let's go back for a moment to what I originally said. You can't do this in California, okay, which has halibut, which has salmon, or used to have salmon runs. You can't do it in Oregon. You can't do it in Washington waters, which is why a lot of um, foreign vessels um, that do business in Washington um, sail up to Alaskan waters to do it. You can't do it on the East Coast. You definitely can't do it off the coast of New Jersey. You can't do it in Florida. You can't do it in North Carolina. You can't do it in Maine, which has a strong uh, history of um, commercial fisheries. The only state that you can do this in. As a matter of fact, one of the only countries that you can do this type of fishing in is right here in America and only in the state of Alaska and only, by the way, in certain parts of Alaska. 
Um, the Bering Sea, Aleutian Islands, like that key key fishing ground that's incredibly important to the biodiversity of the region, is the is being decimated by this trawl fleet, and no one is talking about it. As a matter of fact, if you if you Google right now. Um, what's happening to the salmon in Alaska? Wild caught salmon. Why is it so expensive in the store? Why are we paying fifty dollars a pound for it? Um, reporters at the New York Times would have you believe that it's just the just the climate change is the problem. You know, warming waters. They can't lay their eggs. Blah 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 blah. It's that, it doesn't hold any water. Like there's five species of of Pacific salmon in the Northwest. Okay, two of those species spend most of their time in the lower third of the water column okay that's the that's the king salmon and um the chum salmon okay by contrast two species have been shut down for fishing in the yukon river system like not even subsistence fishermen which get priority in alaska are allowed to fish for them at this point in in the yukon river system king salmon are also in huge decline free fall in the legendary kenai river the um in um uh, in all of the South Central fisheries, the Big Sioux, um, you know, any of those like fisheries that I that I've fished since I moved up here, um, none of those you're allowed to fish for king salmon for anymore. The entire drainage system, the entire Knick area, which is larger than my home state of New Jersey, by the way, you're not allowed to fish for king salmon in any of it. Um, and the so, but by contrast, Alaska recorded a record year. For the past two years, for red salmon, your sockeye salmon, and pink salmon. Why is that? It's because the climate change isn't the problem. Trawling is, okay? And it's not the only problem. Like, I got to say, like, there's a lot of, like, predatory issues. Pike is a, um, you know, pike eat salmon smolt and salmon eggs and stuff. And, like, you know, and it, they're invasive in the um, south of the Brooks Range. So, like, that that contributes. There's a lot of things going on. But trawling is a huge human-led problem that is destroying a key and, like, culturally significant, culinarily significant fishery that's, like, important to the, like, the, again, one of the last great runs – of an anadromous fish. And like, you know, just cause we're personal friends, you know how much I appreciate and love anadromous fisheries. Um, yes. I'm a big shad fisherman on the East coast. I've been a big student of the Atlantic salmon. Actually, I will send you um, a book called the president's salmon. Um, it actually, it's terrifying because it was written five years ago and it's about the decline of a salmon fishery. Um, the Atlantic salmon, the only one on the East coast, um, that, uh, that you know it went the exact same way that king salmon are going now so like when i think about that fishery when i read that book which is sitting over there on my bookshelf right now um it, it hurts my heart because i know that in 10 years i don't know if my seven-year-old is going to be able to fish for king salmon when she's 17 let alone 27 or 37 or 47 with her own kids um so it's a it's a it's a crisis for, for fisheries up here and nobody's talking about it. Something I've always been very curious about is why we don't often see, and I know this is because of red tape or business deals or regulations, what have you, why don't we see much more American raised or Alaskan grown salmon here in the lower 48 and I think elsewhere. And we were talking offhand 
before discussing or before actually going and recording this episode, why that's the case. So what do you know about that? And is it true that much of the processing is done by China and they're very heavily involved in it? So, so what is this? Can you help to mystify this for, for my listeners? What's going on? Why can't we see more Alaska grown salmon in our supermarkets here in the lower 48? Yeah. So that's absolutely driven by um, the need to provide cheap protein to China because of their population issues. They're, I mean, they're an issue all across the Pacific um, and the Coast Guard tangles with Chinese vessels all the time, by the way, um, with regard to enforcement of fisheries issues, because um, that's their job in, um, uh, in, in one respect is, um, is enforcing fisheries uh, laws. So back to some numbers, right? The Amendment 80 bottom is some of the highest bycatch poundage of any fleet in the nation. Um, three guesses, if you will, where 80% of their catch goes. It's not America. <laughs> so set that one aside. Three guesses where that goes directly to China. Okay. Um, so we're basically strip mining, if you will. Once again, we're strip mining these fish. Um, and it's all driven by the Pollock fishery, right? So Pollock is... Um, what you trawl for. Okay. So you have what's called a midwater trawler. Okay. Um, that's supposed to target the, um, the middle of the water column, but it's basically, it's essentially dragged across the bottom, um, and spends, by the way, you can call it a midwater trawler all you want. And you're legally allowed to call it a midwater trawler with as high as 80% of it, 80% of the time it being in contact with the bottom of the ocean. I don't know how that works. Um, I mean, we, we know how it works. Um, it's called lobbying, but um, I don't know how that's allowed because it's, it seems egregious in my opinion, but who am I? Um, so, um, you know, again, we're strip mining um, these fish. 80% of that catch is going to China. And then the ground fish forum is a lobby group for the Amendment 80 bottom trawl fleet. So the number, numbers used in, that, uh, uh, in, in a letter that I've actually provided to you um, are um, – are pretty rock solid. I'll read those off here. So in 2019, the A80 sector exported um, uh, 80, just shy of 82,000 metric tons of flatfish to China and just shy of 23,000 metric tons to other countries. NOAA estimates that 25 to 35% of, of Alaska's total flatfish, which is exported to China for reprocessing and shipped back to the United States as fillets. So, um, so, 70 to 80% of that is, stays in China, okay? Um, and it's processed in China. Um, based on NOAA's 25 to 35% figure, in 2019, between 20, 22.5 million and 31.5 million pounds of harvested flatfish fillet and block product is shipped back to the U.S. using industry-estimated product recovery rate. Um, so that's a lot of gobbledygook to say that, like, by the way, flatfish yield about 40%. So you can double this number to know how how many pounds of fish are being shipped um, to China. Okay. And the volume of fillet production is equivalent to 90 million to 126 million meals. Um so and again, that is just what's shipped back to America. Um four times that amount stays in China. And that's just what they intend to catch, by the way. That's not that's not including the stuff that they're destroying. And again, when this stuff and there's videos of it online, by the way, because again, 
it's completely legal for them to do it. This is not some me uncovering some criminal conspiracy, even though you can call it criminal to some, you know, um, uh, in my opinion, it's approaching that. Um, but it is at the, at this juncture legal for, for these trawl fleets to, to dump this stuff onto the deck and take it by the shovel full and throw it over the side. And that to me is a great, I mean, think, okay, let's think about this for a second. I live in Alaska, obviously, which is what we're talking about. Um, if I shoot a moose, you know, this August, okay. And I leave too much rib meat on the skeleton. I can go to jail for wanton waste. Okay. Wow. If I catch some salmon, and I'm, I get a phone call that Amanda's pregnant and, you know, say she gets pregnant and ends up like having a baby and I ditch my fish on the stream bank and I go run into the hospital, right? Somebody comes along, finds those fish, reports them to fish and game. Okay. I left three salmon on the, on the bank, which is my limit, right? I can go to jail <laughs> for wanton waste. Okay. If I get a job on a trawl vessel and take a shovel full or multiple shovelfuls of salmon and chuck them over the side of the boat to waste away in the ocean, there's nothing wrong with what I did in the third scenario, but I can go to jail for the first two. Okay. Um, tens of thousands of dollars in fines. I can lose my hunting and fishing privileges, blah, 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 blah. But the third scenario where I'm taking them by the shovel shovelful and intentionally chucking them over the side. Totally fine. Nothing wrong with it. Crazy. That that's an interesting glimpse into what is happening with the Alaska salmon fishery. Do you want to conclude on a more positive note? Anything positive? <laughs> it could be personal. I know you've been taking your girlfriend's kids. Not you now. I think you alluded to them being kind of your kids um, unofficially, officially. Uh, so, so Alaska fi- fishing adventures have been good. Anything else you want to end on a positive note? Yeah. I mean, overall, Alaska is amazing. I mean, I know I just spelled out some doom and gloom for everybody. Oh. Um, and, uh, don't let me, um, dissuade you from visiting the last frontier. Um, cause this is an incredible state. And, you know, if, if we can get people involved and, you know, calling your, calling your Senator, calling your, uh, Congressman and telling them that like, this matters to you because you do like to eat king salmon uh, or you do like, you know, the fact that there's still a wild run of salmon in the United States. I would encourage you to um, to take a look at that issue um, and bring it to your congressman because because frankly um, and one reason why I wanted to be on this podcast was if you're a congressman, if you're a senator or if you're a policy director with regard to, you know, fisheries policy um, and you're not paying attention to this issue, I don't blame you because there's no reason for some, you know, Michigan or Missouri senator to like think about this issue because it's, you know, it's not directly affecting your state. Okay. Um, what I would encourage you to think though is that um is that it will matter to your constituents. Um and this is something that you can fix and you're the only ones that can. Okay. Um so um, I wanted to, you know, just directly call out, um, you know, senators, congresspeople, both sides of the aisle. I know that you have a strong listenership there. Um, this is an important issue. I'm happy to talk to your office about it. Um, so you can reach out to me. I'm 
eminently available or you can reach out to the Alaska Outdoor Council. We can provide you with all the information necessary. Um, I do want to give a shout out um, to um, Senator Dan Sullivan. He's been really strong on this issue. Um, he he showed up to the Alaska Outdoor Council's annual meeting and has um, been pushing for um, some strong science on uh, and studies uh, on um, what's happening to the salmon in Alaska. Um, so I know he cares deeply about this issue. Um, I also want to give a shout out um, to um, the Alaska Outdoor Council for all the work they've done on this issue. Uh, so these are volunteers. Um, I'm on the board. Um, and, you know, our policy director, Rod Arno, provided me with a lot of the information. Um, you can also uh, take a look at um, the Stop Alaskan Trawler Bycatch Facebook group. We're 25,000 strong. That's run by a guy named David Bays. He provided me with most of the numbers that I um, cited off today. David's a really good guy. He really cares about this issue. Um, and there's a lot of like sport fishing guides and customers in Alaska who care about this issue because, you know, this this directly affects the amount of fish that someone can put into their freezer and eat um, in Alaska. So um, that's why people should care. Um, from a good news standpoint, I mean – Trout fishing is strong. Um, Kai caught a 23-inch trout the other day. Um, so, I, you know, there's no shortage of those. Um, you know, there's really good fishing up here. Um, so, you know, when you get up here, Gabby, we'll have to, we'll have to get you out on some, on some silvers or something. Yeah. Um, this, yeah uh, I'll this get to month. fish on the Kenai Peninsula, I think, on the 13th. Now we switched it then. So maybe on the 12th, uh, if uh, we've already done I'll most of our filming by then. Uh, for the anchorage portion, yes, we could do some silvers, at least a half day. That would be fun. We'll, yeah. we'll get some extra fishing in. I'll buy the license for several days. It's not that expensive. It's actually really inexpensive. Amazingly, better than even some lower 48 exchange rates. Yeah, it's it's insane when you think about it. Uh, the king, I wouldn't get the king salmon stamp because they'll probably be gone by then. Um, so um, I wouldn't worry about that. Um, I'd focus on silvers and pinks and chums. Mm-hmm. And by the way, everybody's going to tell you to get into silvers and you can eat them. They're coho salmon. They're really good. Um, I mean, you can eat any of them and they actually don't taste uh -huh. that bad. Why people up here are so uppity about it. I will eat anything. No, and I was just researching the process. How the heck do I store? So Alaska Airlines allows you to transport within Alaska yes. free charge, free of charge. Bags don't have to be, you know, bought and paid for. You don't have to pay that crazy baggage fee. It's not that much, but still it's like, oh, this is a nice little thing. But I saw at the airports, if I want to store my salmon in between, you know, if I have to stay longer, if my Airbnbs don't have freezers, which they don't, I don't want to deal with that. So you just pay like a daily storage rate at both the Juno and Anchorage airports. And it's not that bad. And they'll freeze it for you, keep it frozen for you. And then in preparation for your trip home, you can take it with you. So all things considered, instead of like shipping it for $400, I don't want to spend that much money shipping salmon back. Um, I would spend maybe like a hundred, which is not that bad yeah. for storage plus transport um, um, and get it with me. You can also just use one of my freezers. Um, so oh, yeah, in, a, in Anchorage, perhaps. Yes. Well, we could talk about the offline, but I was just researching basically because I don't know anyone in Juneau, <laughs> unfortunately. So I'll have yeah. to probably do it at the airport. Um, yeah. and, and their rate um, is not too bad. Yeah, it's not that bad. And uh, air cargo really does take care of stuff. You can also Perfect. get the fish boxes at any And store doesn't it say, like, this is perishable so they'll know not to, like, yes, it's, put it in? It, I mean, I mean, people come up here to ship their fish back. Of course, so, of course. Um, make sure no, you get on some halibut. Like, take a day. Like, take a day. I don't know if I'll get a day for halibut. <laughs> I may be pushing I'm it. <laughs> you, 
telling you, you're going to be on the peninsula anyway. Take a day, oh. get on a charter, and like do like we'll rockfish, halibut. Like, I mean, halibut are fun. They get pretty big, and like I know not a, it's not an acrobatic fight. It's not like a wahoo, um, but like it's like it's like yanking up a barn door off the bottom. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's what it feels like. Oh. Um, so um, that'll make you tired and. By the way, halibut cheeks are one of the best things that you can eat in all of Alaska. They are very good. I know halibut is delicious. I, th- I think I've had it somewhere here at some well, restaurant. Well, halibut itself is good, but like halibut mm-hmm. cheeks, fresh halibut cheeks right off oh, the Oh, the cheeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've misinterpreted. I was like, I'm telling you. I was like, steaks. I was a, like, maybe a different way. That is an Alaskan steaks. culinary experience. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so that, get yourself some... Um, uh, in that time of year, I'd get some uh, some coho salmon if I was you. You could probably even get in some red still. Um, so you know, there's there'll be um, there'll be no shortage of that. We can map um, out some extra done. stuff, but I know at least the one guy who's helping me. I have to connect you to him. He's a cool guy too. Uh, works in the energy space, and he's been kind of a guide for my upcoming trip. But um, he has a lot of fish that he's going to be catching and storing and freezing. And he said, either way, even if we, he said, you'll catch something. But uh, if you're worried about processing or whatnot, we'll have some fish for you to take home. So it's very nice of him to offer <laughs> that as well. Maybe he'll have some halibut for us to take to who knows. Um, so if I don't get to halibut hunt, uh, fish, maybe I'll get to take some home. We'll see. But I know I'm not coming empty handed. I'll get some fishing experience. That, that's all that matters. But obviously work comes first. I want to get most of my filming done. And then be like, okay, get some fishing in, which they're fine with because we have to incorporate fishing into our report anyway to talk about like how um, for the issues about mining and like the Tongass rule, how even with all this resource development, these fisheries are still pretty pure. Um, they, they It can coexist. You know, a healthy fishery of salmon can coexist with mining or um, oh, absolutely different types of stuff. So no, that's what we're trying to show. So like there's a purpose to me fishing. <laughs> It's not well, just like we're having fun. An aspect of that is like the mining, uh, like the access road that's supposed to go over the Sioux, um, which is supposed to be a mining access road, will open up. I mean, back to our public lands thing. I'm talking about a road. Um, I'll get you some information on it. Maybe we can talk about it again soon. Um, is uh, there's a there's a road, the West Sioux Access Road, um, that is supposed to go over the over the Sioux and to 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 a mining interest out there um, that would open up millions of acres of public land to fishing, hunting, et cetera. Um, and it's being fought by a lot of like, a, that's a weird one because again, access, right? Like avoiding the pay to play model, et cetera. Um, lodge owners, again, property owners in remote lodges, they don't want that to happen because that'll devalue their services. Right. Um, and um, I mean, frankly, like, Places like Trout Unlimited is inexplicably against the access road. Um, Alaska Outdoor Council, we're for it because we think it's going to open up a huge amount of public land um, and allow public access to key fisheries and stuff that, like, so far, only rich yuppies have been able to really access. Um, So um, that's something um, to watch going forward. But like you said, I mean, a lot of these these resource development projects – actually open up recreation access um, through those infrastructure projects and stuff that are, that are crucial to their operations, you know? Yeah. It's all about balance. I I truly think. um, And that's what conservation should be about. Cody, you've dispensed a lot. Where can people connect with you? 
and learn, learn more about this fishery concern about trawling and Alaska issues, where would you like to send them to? Yeah. So you? if you're, if you're um, worried about um, trawl bycatch in Alaska, go to the stop trawler bycatch Facebook page. I will um, include a link for you to put into the show notes. Um, you can connect with me on Twitter at McLaugh 19 M C L A U G H one nine. Um, you can also um, follow my podcast production company, which is Trout Stream Studios. Um, as you can tell, I care a bit about fishing. Um, <laughs> uh, we do podcasting production for a uh, number of conservation-focused organizations and, and shows, um, along with some political leaders. Um, and um, you can uh, follow the Alaska Outdoor Council. Um, which I'm on the board, which I'm on the board of. They're a great advocacy organization that advocates for sportsmen, hunters, and fishermen uh, in the great state of Alaska. Um, we're also the NRA affiliate of the state, so you can um, you can find them at Alaska Outdoor Council on Twitter, or on Facebook, um, or AlaskaOutdoorCouncil.org. We also sell bycatches, wanton waste um, uh, bumper stickers, which goes towards funding the fight against um, trawler bycatch in the state. So if you want to pick one of those up for five bucks, um, you can buy them on our website. Um, and then, you know, just get the word out. Excellent. Thank you again for joining. It's always a blast to catch up with you. I'm excited to see you in Alaska. We will make something work. I have, I'll have a rental car. I'm going to be yeah, using I'll, I'll even take a day off and pop down there just to make sure that we, we have some time. Uh, we're going to catch up. No question about it. Cause I wouldn't have come out that far and not seen you <laughs> <laughs> Even yeah. if I would have had a, a super packed schedule, my, my film schedule will be busy, but it's not going to be like overwhelmingly busy because of yeah. just how spread out your state is. Your adopted it's home a state long is. drive anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I will say there will be pockets of free it, time. Not to worry. <laughs> if you make it to the Willow Creek, right? Ooh. You're, you're a fly fisherman. Yes. Um, there, that is a trophy wild trout state, but also let me pitch to you. Um, and I can even get you with a, with a guide on that, on that, uh, river too. His name's, uh, Shane with, the uh, um, Bear Paul river fishing guides. He looked, he taught me a lot about Alaska. Um, but, uh, and he's a big advocate against this trawler bycatch stuff too. But I do want to say, um, the Willow Creek, great, great Creek. Um, there's even some places we can hike in on it. Um, but the, the trout and the grayling, um, which you will not, you can get trout in any state. So like, I'm not real worried about it. You're not going to find big fat footballs, especially wild ones. Um, like you will in this state, but like you can find trout in any state, right? Grayling, very hard to find in any other state. Yes. Except for like the great lakes. Yeah. And, and again, wild up here and you can catch nice ones. I mean, I've caught two trophy sized grayling, uh, in Alaska, gotten certificates and everything from Alaska fishing game. And they're just beautiful fish, man. They got the big giant fantail on the back. Um, I caught one of them is 20 inches, which is better than oh. bigger than any trout I've ever seen before moving to Alaska. Amazing. No, I've seen your pictures. You've made me jealous and <laughs> I can't wait to see Come this for myself. <laughs> I can't wait to see this for myself because um, I probably will have to leave Alaska to come back down. It's, you know, my home is in the lower 48, uh, but I, I know I will come away from Alaska awestruck in, awe-inspired. So I'm so excited to finally go there. And I know you'll get to give me some tips there. And, and thank you, as always, for coming on the show. And we'll have to have more of a policy breakdown, too, of like anything crazy. Because we've, we've 
I had a lot of updates we've missed discussing. So we should do this again in a couple months, maybe. <laughs> and yeah, another roundup. You got it. Thank you, Cody. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.